Father, it's a privilege for us to gather like this, to worship you through song and commune and celebrating Christ's death and uh, victory over sin through it, and then to continue that worship through the preaching of your word. Pray, Lord, that Christ could be exalted during this time. We're concluding a very powerful parable here about the way uh, Jesus was rejected, uh, primarily for the religious leaders in his day, but also with considerable application for us today as we think about our relationships with Christ. So do you pray that you would use this time to its fullest, Lord? Pray that everything would, I'm sure we have considerably more people uh, online than we normally do. I pray everything would work well in that department. And just let this be a time that we can be focused on you, Lord, despite other things we have going on in our lives, just to have our hearts wholly committed to you. Pray that all the truths you have in these verses that you want revealed to your people, it blesses me that you knew who would be here and what you wanted them to hear, Lord, that you would, be, you would just faithfully deliver that uh, from me and just use me as your vessel for that to happen. I do thank you for this time, Lord. Pray that Christ can be glorified through it, and we ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, we're good to see all of you. So the title of this morning's sermon is The Stone That the Builders Rejected Has Become the Cornerstone. So on Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, verse by verse, and we will conclude the parable of the vineyard owner. We're at Luke 20, verse 16, but we'll back up to the beginning of the parable for context. Not long after Katie and I moved to Washington, and some of you might remember this, my parents followed us soon after, and they were looking for a house, and they had found one that seemed perfect. It was beautiful, the price was low, and I wondered how could this house have stayed on the market for so long? Well, come to find out there was a crack in the foundation, and the house was so unstable that there was no bank that would back a loan. So on one hand, I thought, well, it's sad that there's this beautiful house that seems to have lost everything because of a poor foundation. But then on the other hand, I thought, well, how valuable is something that has such a poor foundation? Buildings are not the only things that need strong foundations. Marriages do, families do, relationships do, and even nations do. We'll see in this morning's sermon that when the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as their foundation, or we could say as their cornerstone, that they lost their value too. So let's review what we've covered so far. Look with me at verse 9. We'll go through these verses quickly because we covered them last week. So Luke 20, verse 9. Jesus began to, tell to the, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. So the vineyard owner represents who? Oh, come on, we can do this this morning. Yeah, I mean, now nobody's upstairs. You guys are all down here, so I should hear you even better, right? So the vineyard owner represents... God and the vineyard represents, we had a certain, yeah, we went to Isaiah 5 to look at that clear uh, association. I think it's Isaiah 5, 7 that says the vineyard of God is, is Israel. So the vineyard represents Israel. Verse 10, the time came, the owner, God sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, but the tenants beat the first servant and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11, the owner sent another servant. They also beat him, treated him shamefully sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, the owner sent a third servant. This one also they wounded and cast out. Who remembers what the servants represent or who the servants represent? The Old Testament prophets, exactly, sent to Israel in the Old Testament who were repeatedly rejected and mistreated like these servants. Now, as we talked about last week, much of this parable would have seemed absurd to Jesus' listeners. Let me say that one more time. So we read through things really quickly but if we were listening, there's an amount of absurdity 
or we could say hyperbole or even exaggeration associated with many of Jesus' teachings, and this is another example here. It was hard to believe that tenants would respond this way. The worst tenants would do is send servants away empty-handed, but it would be absurd to think that tenants would then beat the servants like this and to do that to three servants. And the other part of this parable that's pretty absurd is the own, so the tenants act absurdly and the owner acts absurdly because the owner continues to send servant after servant after servant, even though they keep being beaten and the owner doesn't seem to get upset. And so do you remember the way the owner acts in this parable is a picture of God's what? His long suffering, right? How patient he is with us. And so an, an earthly owner would never act this way, but the owner doesn't picture an earthly vineyard owner. He pictures God the Father. Verse 13, and then the owner kind of reaches the height of absurdity by saying, what shall I do? I will send to my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. Now, you don't have to have a son to know that if you're a vineyard owner and there are tenants that treat three servants this way, the very last person in the world that you would send to them would be your beloved son. But that's what the owner does because, again, he pictures God who did send his son to a Christ-rejecting world that would mistreat him and betray him. So the tenants respond to this incredible demonstration, demonstration of love, patience, and compassion by murdering the son, going even further in their wickedness than they did toward the, the servants. Verse 14, the tenants saw him. They said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard. They killed him. And then what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And then verse 16, this is as far as we got last week. He will come and destroy those servants. And then just pause right there. So we talked about the vineyard owner represents God. The servants that are sent represent the Old Testament prophets. The tenants represent the religious leaders. Very fitting to see the tenants acting this way toward the owner's son because we know that the religious leaders have been plotting Jesus's death. Now that's as far as we got. We only got about halfway through verse 16, which is really filled with so many truths. I wanted to break it up this morning into three parts. So we looked at the first part last week. He'll come and destroy those tenants. So the owner is long-suffering, as God is long-suffering, but the owner's long-suffering comes to an end, just as God's patience and long-suffering does come to an end. And we can see what brings it to an end, the rejection or mistreatment of his son or of Christ. So God seems to be able to put up with much, be compassionate and merciful toward much, but when his son is introduced into our rebellion, then that's where God has had enough. Now, the next part of the verse, look at this. The owner is going to give the vineyard to others. Give the vineyard to others. Now, here's what we could think. Because the vineyard represents Israel, we can imagine this means that God is going to give Israel to or over to another nation. Because we've seen that before in the Old Testament. God gave the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians. God gave the southern kingdom of Judah over to the Babylonians. But that's not what's in view here. Instead, it's better to understand this as God transitioning from focusing on the Jews to focusing on the Gentiles. And this brings us to lesson one. God stopped focusing on Israel and focused on Gentiles. God stopped focusing on Israel and focused on Gentiles. God has taken his attention 
off of his chosen people. We would say he's not finished with them, but for the time being, he has and has put his attention or focus onto the Gentiles. Turn one chapter to the right and look at Luke 21. So I want to draw your attention to one verse. Luke 21, verses 21 to 24. Do your Bibles have a heading around that section? Luke 21, 21 to 24. Do your Bibles have a heading there for that section? No. <laughs> Apparently you're my answer man this morning. Nobody else is being as brave as you, Austin. What's your Bible say? Good. So verses 21 to 24 are about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus is foretelling or prophesying that destruction. Look at verse 24. Yeah, look at verse 24. The Jews will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And if you pause there, we've talked a few times up to this point about Rome coming and destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD, and that's what's in view in these verses. And when it says here that they're going to be led captive among the Jews are going to be led captive among all the nations. This is the diaspora or the dispersion of the Jews, which we, has lasted even until our day, right? Are there Jews that are dispersed throughout the world even today? I mean, Jews are returning to their land. It's significant on God's prophetic timeline that for the first time in the last 2,000 years, we have more Jews in, in Judah or in uh, Israel than we've had elsewhere in the world as they continue their return. But that's what's in view here, that they're going to be dispersed. Verse 24 goes on, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That refers to the Romans conquering Jerusalem in 70 AD, but since then have numerous other peoples or nations trampled or occupied Jerusalem. Yes, even to today, we see Palestinians who trample or occupy Jerusalem. That's what's in view there. And now the end of the verse, and this is what I want you to see. It says, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this is the times of the Gentiles. It's synonymous with church age, and it's referring to what we're talking about when God has his focus on the Gentiles. Hence, it is our time, more commonly called the church age. It's the time that God has allowed the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles have been the primary preachers of the gospel. There are Jewish Christians, but the churches are largely filled with Gentiles. So here's what we see. God isn't going to destroy his vineyard just because he has some bad tenants. That wouldn't make sense, right? If, if, a, if a vineyard isn't being managed well, you don't burn the vineyard down. You get rid of those tenants, and then you get new ownership or management, not ownership, new management. And so that's what God does. He ends up allowing the Gentiles to be given many of the privileges or advantages that had been given to his people. And he wants the vineyard to produce fruit. And so just to ask you, do we see Gentiles today producing fruit? Yes, most of the missionaries are Gentiles. Most of the church leaders are Gentiles. Most of the gospel preaching is being done by Gentiles. Listen to the parallel account in Matthew. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 21, 41. The owner will put the tenants to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants, referring to Gentiles, who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Jews, and given to a people producing its fruits. 
again Gentiles. Jesus makes this same point very clear in the parable of the wedding feast. Go ahead and turn to the left to Matthew 22 so I can show you what I mean. Turn to the left to Matthew 22. While you turn there, I'll share that I did entertain making this two sermons, but I wanted to conclude this parable. But if I want to make it two sermons, we could have went to Romans 11, where you see the discussion of branches being broken off the tree, Jews, so that other branches can be grafted in, right, Gentiles. So that whole analogy that Paul has in Romans 11 is making the exact same point that Jesus is making here in the parable of the vineyard owner about giving the vineyard over to Gentiles, and the same point we're going to see him making here in the parable of the wedding feast. I'm going to go through this quickly. Here's the context in Matthew 22. There's a king. He throws a celebration for his son. Verse 1, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, do you already see a parallel between the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the vineyard owner. Both of these parables involve servants being sent, right? We see servants being sent in the parable of the vineyard owner, and again, we see servants being sent here. And in both parables, the servants represent the Old Testament prophets. Verse 4, again, he sent other servants. So another parallel with a vineyard owner, more servants being sent. Tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner, oxen, fat calves have been slaughtered, everything's ready, come to the wedding feast. This pictures how our salvation has been accomplished for us, all the work has been done. There's nothing more that needs to be prepared or done for us to be saved. Verse 5, but they paid no attention. They went off, one went to his farm, another to his business. Now, a moment ago, I told you how Jesus frequently taught absurdly or outrageous things. And this parable contains another example of this. It's subtler, but it's there. We, having not lived at the time that Jesus preached this, might miss it, but for a moment, just consider kind of the absurdity that there would be individuals in Jesus' day who would not want to go to the king's son's wedding. The people in Jesus' day typically worked how many days? Yeah, they worked six days, and typically those days were 12 hours long. They worked six 12-hour days, they took one day off, Saturday the Sabbath, and then that began again on a Sunday for them. So their lives were difficult, short compared to our lives. Most, many people never lived long enough to see grandchildren, say nothing about great-grandchildren. Um, I'd say bitter lives compared to our lives, and particularly uneventful lives especially compared to our lives everyone wanted to attend weddings which were much different than our weddings our weddings are a few hours long but we know from the wedding at cana that weddings stretched on for up to a week so imagine what someone's life looked like in jesus day and now you get to go to a wedding that's seven days long where there's someone who's providing all of your food it's a pretty luxurious event now that would be a normal wedding most people live their lives and never had the opportunity to be invited to the king's wedding, even when, or the king's son's wedding. This would literally be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So it's absurd that anyone would, as Jesus said here, 
pay no attention and then go off to their farm or off to their business. And so why would Jesus preach something so absurdly here? Because he's making the point that just like it's absurd that anyone would reject a king's invitation to his son's wedding, it is equally or even more absurd that anyone would reject a king's invitation to join his, or let me say it like this, would reject the king of kings' invitation to join his kingdom. So if people come up to Jesus and they said, this doesn't make sense, nobody would reject an invitation to the king's wedding, Jesus would say, it makes even less sense that some of you are going to reject eternal life, right? Okay, so verse 6. While the rest seized his servants, they treated them shamefully, they killed them. Another parallel with the parable of the vineyard owner, the servants representing the Old Testament prophets are now being mistreated. Verse 7, the king was angry, he sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, burned their city. Another parallel with the parable of the vineyard owner, the people who mistreated the servants are destroyed. Verse 8, the king said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. This refers to the Jews. And I just want to invite you to keep in mind that it says they were not worthy. Hold on to that for a moment. Verse 9, the king says to the servants, go to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all of whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. So now we see that the invitation has went from the Jews to the Gentiles, right? That's what's happening here. And this is another parallel. Just like the vineyard owner isn't going to destroy his vineyard just because there's bad tenants, the king is not going to cancel his son's wedding just because some reject the invitation. The vineyard owner is going to get new management and the king is going to get new guests. So we can watch the focus move from Jews to Gentiles in the book of Acts. We're talking about the transition from Jews to Gentiles and we can see this played out in the book of Acts or in the early church. Go ahead and turn to Acts 13. And while you turn there, hopefully, if sometimes I feel like I, I'll talk to Katie and she'll say, make sure you really spell it out. Do you see how the parable of the wedding feast just made the same point that the parable of the vineyard owner made? In the parable of the vineyard owner, the vineyard is taken from the Jews, given to the Gentiles. In the parable of the wedding feast, it's making the same point. It's a different analogy. But the Jews were invited. They reject the invitation. And then God turns his focus to the the Gentiles. We watch this transition or change of focus in the book of Acts. So if you're in Acts 13, look at verse 45. I'll go through these verses quickly. When the Jews saw the crowds, these would be Gentile crowds that are listening to Paul and Barnabas preach, they're filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying that it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, the Jews, because you thrust it aside and, notice this language, judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So this is a fulfillment of what Jesus preached in the parable of the vineyard owner and the parable of the wedding feast. And you also notice here that Paul said that they had the Jews, by rejecting the gospel, 
judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. When, and which is a pretty fascinating thing to consider, if you ever preach the gospel to people and they reject it, those are people who have judged themselves unworthy or undeserving of eternal life. That's what was said in the parable of the wedding feast, and Paul repeats it here. You don't have to communicate that to people if they reject the gospel, but you should recognize that that's what they've decided. Because of this rejection, they have now made themselves unworthy of eternal life. Turn to Acts 18. Look at verse 5. Silas and Timothy, it says they arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, and then Acts 18.5, testifying to the Jews, he's preaching to the Jews, that the Christ was Jesus, the Messiah is Jesus. Verse 6, when the Jews opposed and again reviled Paul, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. More evidence of the focus moving from Jew to Gentile. Turn to the very end of Acts, Acts 8.28. Acts 8, 28, 28, actually. Third to last book, or excuse me, third to last verse of the book of Acts. Acts 28, 28, Paul tells the Jewish leaders, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles because they will listen. So the gospel kept being preached to the Jews. They kept rejecting it, rejecting it. And so there's the transition of the Gentiles. That's how the book of Acts even ends. And now you can turn back to Luke 20. We won't turn anyplace else. And I want to connect the dots so you can see why the parable of the vineyard owner is so important. Essentially, this is, this, after studying this all week, this is how I see this. The parable of the vineyard owner lets the Jews know that the opposite of what they think is going to happen is going to happen. There's something they think is going to happen, and the opposite of that is actually what's going to happen. They think they're going to gain something. They think they're going to gain an inheritance, but they actually end up losing their inheritance. And here's what I mean. Look at verse 14. Luke 20, verse 14. When the tenants saw him, the owner's son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Talked about this verse last week. So you see how the tenants or the religious leaders think they're going to get this inheritance. They thought murdering the vineyard owner's son would give them this, but Jesus told them that the opposite of that is going to happen and that they're actually going to lose, in a sense, their inheritance as that they've known or had as God's chosen people simply because of their rejection of the vineyard owner's son. So it's a reversal. It's them thinking they'll gain something, but losing something instead. Now look at verse 16 to see how they respond to this. Luke 20, verse 16, the vineyard owner will come and destroy those tenants, give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, that's the Jews who are listening, they said, surely not. After last Sunday's sermon, someone asked me about this because it could sound confusing. The Jews learned that God was going to stop paying attention to them to pay attention to the Gentiles. So just imagine you're a Jew and you're listening, and you just heard Jesus preach 
that God is going to stop focusing on you as a Jew to focus on the Gentiles, and the Jews could not believe it. They're not arguing with Jesus. When, he, when they say, surely not, this isn't them disagreeing with him. This is more them being horrified by what he's saying. They can't believe that this would be the case. Other translations make this clear. Like in the NIV, they said, God forbid, like God forbid that this would happen. The NASB, may this never happen. The Amplified, may it never be. So basically, it sounded so bad, they, they said like, surely, surely this should not be the case, or surely we hope this would not happen. But Jesus tells them this is exactly what's going to happen. Look at verse 17. He looked directly at them, and he said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. When do we look directly at people? When we're, we want them to know we're completely serious about what we're saying, right? We've already been talking about how Jesus would speak in hyperbole or exaggeration, sometimes say absurd things. It's almost like right here, Jesus looks directly at them and says, I know there's other times when I've exaggerated or used figurative language to make a point. This is not one of those times. This is exactly what is going to happen because he can tell that they were struggling to believe this. As God's chosen people, they thought that they would always be the ones that God focused on. And so Jesus, to evidence what he's saying or legitimize what he's saying, he then pulls this verse out of the Old Testament that they would be familiar with, Psalm 118.22, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this prophecy perfectly fits with this parable and brings us to lesson two. The stone represents the sun and the builders represent the tenants. The stone represents the sun and the builders represent the tenants. So this one verse, Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's almost like a concise summary of the parable that Jesus just preached. So you could read through the parable and then see Jesus quote Psalm 118, 22 and kind of say, you know, what do these have to do with each other? But after you study it out, you can see that this is a great summary or concise way of summarizing what this parable is primarily about. The rejected stone represents the rejected vineyard's owner's son. The builders who rejected the stone represent the tenants who rejected the son. Now, here's what's interesting. Just give me your attention for a moment. We know, okay, so this is taken, or a quote from Psalm 118. We know that the Jews are very familiar with Psalm 118. How do we know that? Because this is the second time that we have recently seen Psalm 118. The other time was at the triumphal entry. Psalm 118 is the psalm that the Jews quoted when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118.26. And so my point is, right here we're seeing Psalm 118.22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Four verses later, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So my point is, they knew this psalm well enough to quote it at Jesus' triumphal entry because it was a familiar messianic psalm. So they also would have known it well enough that when Jesus said, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, they would recognize that verse and say, oh wow, this is about Christ. This is about the Messiah. This is about us rejecting him. 
We know this verse because it's quoted so many times in the New Testament. A few examples here. Peter and John quoted it to the religious leaders. Acts 4.11, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter quoted it in his epistle, 1 Peter 2.7, the honor is for you who believe, for those, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Let me ask this, is it a theme in Scripture for Jesus to be compared with a stone or a rock? Yes, it's pretty, probably one of the most common metaphors for Christ. Just a few examples. Zechariah 10.4, from Judah shall come the cornerstone, referring to Jesus. Isaiah 28.16, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, referring to Jesus. Interestingly, there's at least once in the Old Testament when it looks like the pre-incarnate Christ seemed to be a rock. And when was that? When Christ was the rock that followed Israel in the wilderness, providing water for them. 1 Corinthians 10.4, Israel drank that same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Think about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue looked very majestic to him a man who was power hungry and each of the different materials in that statue represent the different nations of the world and then how is this statue destroyed there's a stone or rock cut without hands which is to look to i would say christ's pre-eternal nature or having always existed or not being made by man crashing into this image picturing the destruction of all of these kingdoms of the world, and then that stone fills the whole earth. I'll just read the verse. Daniel 2.34, a stone, or two verses. A stone was cut out by no human hand, referring to Jesus. It struck the image. The image was broken in pieces, and the stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Think of the way Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount with the parable of the two builders. Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house. It didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus is that rock or his teaching or a life after Christ is a life or a marriage after Christ or a family after Christ is a life, marriage, or family that is built on that rock and will withstand the storms of life. It doesn't mean that we're going to be immune to them. I think one of the most common misunderstandings in the Christian life, I remember Jake talking about this in one of his sermons, that he foolishly believed that, or maybe he even preached the gospel. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he highlighted that Christ, the, there's a belief that Christianity is associated with a trial-free life to some people, and that's really the prosperity movement, right? And this parable makes the point that even those houses or lives or marriages or families that are built on the rock still experience the same storms as those that are not built on the rock. The difference isn't that one experiences the storms and one doesn't. The difference is that one withstands the storms and one doesn't. So we can go further now. We're kind of going to zoom in here. We're talking about Jesus being a rock, Jesus being a stone. And we can say that Jesus is a special stone. And which one is that? What do we call that special stone that Jesus is? He's the, he's the cornerstone. 
In ancient times, it was, and I don't know, I'm not trying to be funny, I'm not into construction, maybe because we use so much cement now, that's going to be a foundation that we wouldn't have this sort of understanding. But in the ancient world, I think anyone associated with building would know that the most important part of the foundation, or probably of the entire structure, actually, that's what I should say, scratch what I previously said, the most important, important point of the entire structure was the first stone that was laid, it was given a special name, the cornerstone. It supported the entire building because the two first, the first and second wall came off of that stone. And so that stone had to bear the weight of the two walls that came off of it, which made it essential for the entire structure. Second, because the two walls were built off the cornerstone, this cornerstone would end up determining the shape of the entire building. All, in other words, all the other stones had to adjust themselves based on the placement or location of this cornerstone. And so you can see how all of this would look well to Christ. He's the first stone that's laid for the structure or building that we know as the church. He is the most important part of the church. As the foundation, he supports the entire structure. Our minds can go to Ephesians 2.20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And second, just as the cornerstone would determine the shape of the whole building, with Christ as the head of the church and us obeying him or doing what he wants, that then causes the church to look the way or be shaped by Christ. Now think about this for a moment. Ephesians 2.20, the verse I just read about the apostles and prophets being part of that foundation with Christ, isn't really what we would expect to read. And here's what I mean. I just wanted you to think about this. We're familiar with that. We know apostles, prophets make the foundation of the church. If you didn't know that, who has been the very important religious people that you would expect to be part of that foundation? The religious leaders, the scribes, the elders, the Sadducees, the lawyers. So if you didn't know better, you would think that the foundation of the church would consist of Christ and the religious leaders, not the apostles and the prophets, because the religious leaders are those individuals who have been so prominent and seemingly important throughout Israel's religious history. But when the religious leaders rejected Jesus, they rejected the church because they rejected the cornerstone that the church was built off. By rejecting the cornerstone, they rejected the whole building. So you can't have individuals be part of a foundation when they have rejected the cornerstone. So they dismissed themselves or they removed themselves from being part of that foundation. And instead, it was not the religious leaders, but the apostles and the prophets that end up making that foundation for the church. That's why we read Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. So I want to be clear about the many important things that Jesus was doing with this parable. There's three of them that I can see. First, he claims to be the vineyard owner's son. Because the listeners would know that the vineyard owner was God, he was claiming to be God's son or the son of God. Second, Jesus claimed to be the stone that the builders rejected when he quoted Psalm 118.22. Because that was a messianic psalm, he was also claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus also claimed that the Jews were going to murder him 
when he taught that the tenants would murder the owner's son. We're so used to that, Jesus dying for our sins, Jesus being rejected and crucified, that we think little about it. But if you were a Jew and you listened to Jesus preach a parable like this, and you understood that he was saying that you were going to crucify your own Messiah, I mean, that would be an absolutely shocking thought to them. They couldn't imagine that. But that's what Jesus was claiming here, that the Jews were going to reject and murder their own Messiah. It would have sounded horrible, unbelievable to them, but that's what Jesus was claiming here, and obviously we know that's exactly what happened. But there's probably one more important reason Jesus preached this parable, and this is probably the most important reason. Okay, so follow me on this. In a few days, this is, could be Wednesday, so we could be two days out from the cross. So in two days, perhaps, the Jews are going to reject Jesus, the religious leaders are going to reject Jesus, have him arrested, he's going to be betrayed, and then tried, and then he's going to be crucified. And this is what I want to ask. When Jesus is crucified, how do the religious leaders look and how does Jesus look? Let me say this one more time. You don't have to answer aloud. I just wanted to think about it. In a few days, let's say when Christ is crucified, how do the religious leaders look and how does Jesus look? The religious leaders look victorious and Jesus looks defeated, right? If you take your minds to the cross, you can picture Jesus hanging there. Picture the religious leaders at the foot cursing him, mocking him, ridiculing him. It looks like an incredibly successful day for them and an incredible loss or defeat or failure for Christ, right? If you understand that, then you see the necessity for this parable because this parable is saying that the opposite is true. Jesus preaches this and says that despite how it looks, I'm victorious, you are defeated. Even if you look at... Luke 20, 15, it says they threw him out of the vineyard. They killed him. I mean, that looks like defeat. How do you look more defeated than being killed and then your body discarded? But when Jesus quotes Psalm 118, 22, and see here's the thing, when I'm, whenever I'm studying, here's my desire. I mean, I hope, I hope my sermon, I don't know anyone that wants to be boring, right? <laughs> As a teacher, you want to be engaging. You, you, you want to be enjoyable. But that's not your primary desire. Your primary desire is that God's word says this and you want people to understand what God's word says, right? And so here's what I want you to understand. The point of Jesus quoting Psalm 118.22 is letting everyone know that he's going to be victorious and they are going to be defeated. That's his primary reason behind this quote. Listen to it again. The stone the builders rejected has what? Become the chief cornerstone. It looks like defeat, but it is in fact victory. Another way to say it is even though they rejected Jesus, God the Father chose to exalt him. Think of the verses in Philippians 2 that make this point. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. And so the whole point of Psalm 118.22 is really to let Jesus' listeners know, in a couple days, I'm going to look like a huge failure to you. The religious leaders are going to look like they got the upper hand, or better than the upper hand. They're going to look like they finally got the victory that they've always wanted, which is my rejection and murder. 
But right here he said, it's the exact opposite. It's going to be my victory because the stone that has been rejected ends up becoming the chief cornerstone. And Jesus drives this point home with verse 18, our last verse in this wonderful parable. Look at Luke 20, verse 18. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when the stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. And this brings us to our last lesson. Lesson three, fall on Christ's mercy or he falls on you in judgment. Fall on Christ's mercy or he falls on you in judgment. I think it's easier to understand this verse if we split it in half. And if we understand the first half of the verse applies to believers, the second half of the verse applies to unbelievers. So let's break it in half and take the first part dealing with believers. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken in pieces. Now, upon first reading, don't tell me what it does mean, just tell me how it initially sounds. Does this sound like a good thing or a bad thing? This sounds like a bad thing, right? Falling on Christ, being broken to pieces sounds like a bad thing that you don't want to have happen to you. But it's not the bad kind of, is there a good kind of brokenness and a bad kind of brokenness? There is, right? This is the good kind of brokenness. This is the brokenness over sin. This is the brokenness that's associated with contrition or, or humility. Kind of think of the language of Psalm 51, 17, when David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. Have you ever, have you ever, I remember a friend of mine came to meet with me and his life was, he kind of turned his life into a huge mess. I didn't put this on my notes. I'm trying to remember. Normally I like to have my illustrations on my notes so I can remember all the details well. About probably 17 years ago, a friend of mine who largely, I believe, wrecked his life because of the way he was living, and he'd been involved in ministry and had reached this very low point, and he comes to meet with me, and he's sitting, and I hadn't seen him in years. Now, maybe that's an exact, probably not years, probably it had been months. He didn't seem to want anything to do with any of his Christian friends when he went off the, the deep end, spiritually speaking. And I was one of those people he didn't have anything to do with. He reaches out to me. I felt very fortunate that he, he wanted to see me. So he comes over to my house, and he's sitting across from me, and he just was like this huge, broken mess. But it was really beautiful because I thought it was the first time that he had been broken over his sin in, in who knows how long. So I tried to encourage him when he, he felt very dismal about his situation. I said, I think this is a very beautiful moment because I'm finally, to see this sort of brokenness and contrition over your sin, I think this is exactly where God has wanted you over these last few months when you've been living in rebellion to him. So all that to say, that's the brokenness that's in view. That's when you fall on Christ and on his mercy and are broken over your pride and your self-will. Now, the second half of the verse says, when the cornerstone falls on anyone, it will crush him. These are people who will not be broken over their sin, and will be broken by Christ's judgment. So anyone who insists on opposing Christ, like the tenants in the parable, or we would say like the religious leaders they exemplify, end up being pulverized. Some, and I'll say this lightly because I'm not convinced this is true. There are some people who see the resurrection here because, this isn't a true question, where is a cornerstone typically? It's in the ground, right? How do, you have a, how do you have a cornerstone falling on someone? So they see a resurrection. They see a cornerstone coming up out of the ground so that it can fall. 
on someone like that. Whether that's true or not, the point is still the same, that you don't want to be on that side, the underside of the cornerstone where it would fall on you like this. You're going to be broken by Christ if you reject him or resist him. Listen to these two verses that tie it together. Isaiah 8, 14, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So because the Jews rejected Jesus, they stumbled over him. They were judged. But those who trust in Jesus find him to be the chief cornerstone for our lives. Let me conclude with this. In these verses, does Christ sound harsh or severe to you at all? I think he does. He can sound that way. And Romans eleven twenty two says to consider the goodness and the severity of God. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that God or Christ when he's preaching sounds severe. But what I would say that no matter how severe or how harsh Christ might sound here, his words are still incredibly loving, and here's why. Any warning that's true is loving. It is impossible for any warning that is true to be anything other than loving. If you warn something that's not going to come true, then that's not loving. But if you warn, something, if you warn people about something that is going to happen, that is loving, and that is what Jesus is doing here. He's warning people about the danger of head. He's warning the people in his day that if they reject him, they will be judged. This is a fitting way to conclude because the same is true in our day. We have two choices. In brokenness and humility, we can confess our sin. We can fall on the grace and the mercy of Christ to be saved. Or in pride and rebellion, we can reject Christ and choose to have him fall on us in judgment. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I will be up front after service and consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for this parable that we concluded today. Thank you for Christ's love as he, as he warned the people about rejecting him and what that meant. And I thank you for the long-suffering nature of yours that was shown as you continued to send servant after servant after servant to these people, finally even sending your own son, knowing what he would experience. But then we see that long-suffering comes to an end and there's judgment for those who reject Christ, Lord. So I do thank you that you provided a way for us to be saved through Christ and would pray that by your grace you would open all of our hearts to the gospel and grant us repentance and faith and help us to cling to Christ. As Nathan said, the gospel is not something just for us to save us, but something that would continue in our lives as we're sanctified into the image and likeness of your Son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.